you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me this morning to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 28. Hear now the word, the living God. And it came to pass on the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, and how shall Pharaoh heed me? So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by my great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Then Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. And Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they did so, just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, so the magicians of Egypt. They also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. But... Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray as we begin. Now, gracious God, we pray to you, the one whose mercy is more than all of our sin, that you would so incline our hearts and minds wills and affections to the things of your word this morning, that we are changed by your spirit. We pray that your people would recognize the voice of their shepherd, Jesus Christ, in the pages of these scriptures. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever wondered what God was going to do, particularly when the situation was unclear? When your own weakness was clearly on display, and when the outcome seemed certain, perhaps you wonder regularly what God is going to do, but those times when it seems like the situation is unclear, this could go any number of ways, when your own weakness was very evident, how could God work through you as weak as you are? And when the outcome seemed quite uncertain. That's the kind of situation we find ourselves in this morning in Exodus chapter 7. Now, if you're just joining us, we as a church are walking through this book of Scripture, and we're going to see this morning what God will do. If you're wondering, what is it we're going to see in the Scriptures today? We're going to see what God will do. 
But if you're just joining the Christian church, maybe you've just come in and I've read a passage of Scripture from Exodus and you're thinking, huh, this is interesting. Snakes that get eaten by other snakes and a man named Moses. I think I've heard his name before. You need to understand that the Bible really is God creates all things in Genesis and at the very end of the Bible, we see new creation on display. The heavens and the earth pure and pristine because of the blood of Christ. We are towards the beginning of that story. But the entire story of the Bible from the first page to the last page is Jesus is coming to pay the price for sinners, to bring them to God. Sinners who are more guilty than they realize, uniting them to a God who is much more merciful than they realize. So that's the Bible. There are a lot of stories in it, and we're looking at a few in the first few chapters of it. But all of these stories have one big story to tell. Jesus is the centerpiece of history, truly God and truly man, sent to redeem fallen creation. That's where we are. So let's look at this one smaller story and then see if we can see part of that larger story of the whole Bible. What Will God do? Well, at the very end of chapter 6, again, God speaks with Moses. We've seen this several times. He gives him a commission. I want you to go to Pharaoh. By the way, Pharaoh would be the king of the greatest nation during this period of time in the world. I want you to go to the king, Pharaoh, and I want you to say, you've got something that belongs to me and I want you to let it go. Let my people go. Now, the people of the Hebrews have been for generations enslaved in Egypt. It was part of God's providential plan to bring about that big story that I was telling you about a few moments ago. But once again, we see that not only does God call Moses to do something, but Moses responds in a way that we've seen him respond before. Verse 30 of chapter 6, God, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. What he means here is, my lips aren't prepared for this task. They're not set apart for this task. I don't have what it takes to do this task. Remember our question, what will God do when our weakness is on display? Verse 1 of chapter 7, so the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you as God to Pharaoh. Now, boys and girls, God is not telling Moses that he is God. He's not saying, hey, Moses, come be God with me. No, he's saying that Moses is going to become the voice of God. Pharaoh is going to hear the very words of God through Moses and Aaron. So what will God do? Let's walk through the text and see at least three things that God will do, both in this period of time and in times to come. The first is this. God shows his glory over earthly powers. God shows his glory over earthly powers, whether they be a dictator in Egypt thousands of years ago or a dictator ruling and reigning today in a country, for instance, like North Korea. God shows his glory over all earthly powers. Let's see this. Verse 2, you shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of the land, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land. 
my signs and wonders. We'll see that again in the book of Exodus, but this is the first time we've seen that phrase in the book of Exodus so far. God is saying, I'm going to do signs and I'm going to do wonders. Now we'll see that first sign today. But next week, Lord willing, we'll begin to see several of those wonders. The plagues. Maybe you've heard of the plagues in the book of Exodus. Really, those plagues were three sets of three, followed by a final, very challenging plague. The ten plagues. We'll see a whole host of them, but they do occur as the narrative unfolds in three sets of three. These are the signs and wonders that God is talking about. But the first sign is not a plague. It's a sign of what God is going to do. So let's see what that sign is. Verse 4, But Pharaoh will not heed you, so that... Why will Pharaoh not listen to God? The Bible tells us so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. I'm going to save my people, and I'm going to show my glory to a people who've yet to know me. That's what God is going to do. Now in verse 4, God says to Moses, but Pharaoh will not heed you. He's not going to listen to you. God knows all things from the beginning, boys and girls. No one needs to teach God anything. He knows what will happen. God has already predicted this. You could go all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 19. We've seen this before. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. Pharaoh will not listen to you. But you need to know, Moses, that when he doesn't listen to you, It is to me that he's not heeding. Now notice again the reason in God's providence for Pharaoh's refusal to hear. Verse 5. God is going to get glory in redeeming Israel, bringing them out of slavery. It's going to be miraculous. People who are so trapped in something that they have no hope of survival are going to be suddenly freed. God, singularly, acting alone, unilaterally, is going to bring a whole covenant people out of slavery to something. They are in chains. They are in bondage. They are making bricks in the dirt. God is going to save them. For those of you who are listening to this story with an eye to see Christ, you know exactly that's what God did for you. You were enslaved to sin. Hopeless chained by it, making bricks in the dirt of this sinful world. And God saved you. He unilaterally, singularly, of His own work, saved you. So once again, Exodus becomes a picture of the salvation of sinners. But notice in verse 5, he says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. They will know my name. You remember several books of the Bible later. Another pagan people group will say things like this. We have heard of your Yahweh. We have heard what he did to the Egyptians. God will bring glory to his name all over the globe because of what is about to happen. 
Now, this theme of the Egyptians knowing the Lord is a theme of Exodus in one sense. In chapter 6, verse 7, God says that the Hebrews will know that I am the Lord. Now, here we see that the Egyptians will come to know who he is. And let me just list a few passages of Scripture. Listen to all of these passages in Exodus where the theme is, they will know that I am the Lord. Exodus 5, 2, 7-17, 8-10, 8-22, 9-14, 10-2, 14-4, 14-18. It's everywhere in the book of Exodus. God's action is that his glory be seen over whoever the powers are. One of the reasons that the living God saved you is so that you would know that he is the Lord. God shows his glory over earthly powers. But you know, in this passage of scripture, we see that God shows power over Egypt, but he shows power over the king's heart. Now we're going to see this phrase, boys and girls, for the next few chapters. Sometimes it's going to be written as Pharaoh hardened his heart. And sometimes it will be God who is seen as hardening Pharaoh's heart. But it is God who is in control of all things to include the hearts of men and women. In our passage of scripture, the Lord says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. What does that mean? Early within Christianity, a man who was freed from horrendous sin would later on become a preacher and a theologian. And here's what he said. His name was Augustine. Commenting on a passage like this, he said, God constantly says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And gives the reason why he does this. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and fulfill my signs and my portents in Egypt. As if the hardening of Pharaoh's heart were necessary so that God's signs might be multiplied and fulfilled in Egypt. God makes good uses of bad hearts for what he wishes to show to those who are good or those he is going to make good. And the quality of evil in each, that is, what sort of heart is disposed to evil, came about through its own evil doing, which grew from the choice of the will. But that those things happened by which his heart, so evil by its own vice, resisted God's command, it is called hardened, because it did not bend and agree, but resisted unbendingly, was of divine dispensation. It was not unjust to such a heart. It was not unjust to such a heart. Brothers and sisters, we are treading on very sober waters when we speak about the hardening of the heart. I read you this lengthy quote by Augustine, who, by the way, those of you that like church history, sounds a whole lot like John Calvin and every other reformer. God sometimes allows our hearts to follow their own course to evil. You know who that sounds like? Paul. What does Paul say in the book of Romans? Just to give you a couple of examples, because some of you might be thinking, listen, if God wants Pharaoh to say yes, either God is going to sit up there and just kind of hope that Pharaoh does something, which would mean we'd have a weak, non-sovereign God, 
Or God is sitting up there, but he can only act insofar as his creatures act, as if God, who he is, his nature, and what he does depends on anything in us. And both of those are not a description of the sovereign of the universe. God shows his glory over the nations of this world, but he shows his glory over every single heart. And to the degree that we think this is unfair, hear the words of Paul when he reminds us, in keeping with Augustine several hundred years later, Romans chapter 1, a long list of the sinfulness of human beings is given, the shameful sinfulness. And then in Romans 1.28, we read this about God. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness. And then the list of sins goes on. God is not in the pages of Scripture forcing innocent, sinless people into sin. God, for the glory of His name, saves people who are enslaved to sin and passes over others who purely desire to follow their own path into sin. We will see that. There's never a moment where Pharaoh really desires to bend towards God, but God keeps him from bending. There's never a moment where if only God would let Pharaoh choose God, Pharaoh would do it. Pharaoh hates Yahweh. The Egyptians hate Yahweh. Many of the Hebrews hate Yahweh. Many of you in this room hate Yahweh. And unless God comes and has mercy on you and pulls you back from your own God-hatingness, you will stay there and you will love it. But, Ephesians 2, God, who is rich in mercy, what? Because of the great what? Love with which he loved us, made us what? Alive together with Christ by Grace, you have been saved. You know the glorious grace of God that saved you is a grace that let you not go the path that you desperately wanted to walk. Romans 9, Paul says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. It was not unjust to such a heart. Brothers and sisters, one of the prayers that I think that we need to pray more frequently is a prayer of thanksgiving that goes something like this. God, thank you for not letting me go down the path that I was headed down. Thank you for preserving me every day so that I don't make shipwreck of faith. Thank you for not only letting me hear the preaching of the gospel, but allowing your spirit to come and give me life so that I may respond in a way that I wouldn't have responded if my will had been left unchanged. See, God gets glory over sinful nations, but he gets glory every single day when his gospel goes forward and a sinful, slave-bent heart who loves sin is miraculously changed into a heart that hears for the first time the gospel and says, I have to have Christ. And Christ honors his promise. Come to me and I will give you rest. And that soul is saved by the mercy of God. God gets glory. There's going to be a day, brothers and sisters, and it will come soon, where there will be voices, people with all kinds of past, voices from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and they will sing singularly a praise to the Lamb of God who bled that they may have life. And all of those voices will be sung from hearts 
that hated God, but God, who is rich in mercy, changed their path. Well, God is going to do something in this chapter. He is going to show his glory over all earthly powers. The powers of nations and the powers of the heart that hate him. Now you may think, why is this pastor getting so jazzed? I mean, I I know religion might be important, but what's the big deal? You see, friend, here's the, the, the thing. You're born not neutral. You're born hating God. And, and you actually live that out every day, even as an infant. You, you, you hate God. You may not always cognitively be aware that in every moment the things that you're doing are bent against God and bent towards sin and self. But because of who you are, born in Adam, you, you are a sinner. You have a sinful nature. And people do what their nature is. And you sin. And every sin is, as one theologian would say, cosmic treason. It is looking at the face of our Creator and saying, you know, I think I know better. I want more than you're giving me. You're holding out on me. I don't want your design. And that's our life. But the grand story of the Bible is that God sent His Son to die for sinners. That whoever trusts in Him will not perish meaning being separated from God because of our sin and experiencing God's judgment for sin, will not perish but have everlasting life. And to the degree that you hear that message and say, yes, I must have this Savior, it's only because God, by His Spirit, drew you to Christ. All that the Father gives to me Jesus says, will come to me. And the one, any who come to me, I will not cast out. Really, God's power over nations, perhaps in some degree, is not nearly as great as God's power over human God-hating hearts. But you know, there's another thing that God is going to do in this text. In addition to showing his glory over earthly powers, he's going to show his power over idols. Notice what happens next in the text. God says why this is going to happen. And then in verses 6, 7, and 8, we see that Moses and Aaron obey. Picking up in verse 8, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves. Remember, God knows all things, boys and girls. He knows what's going to happen. Pharaoh's going to ask you this, so here's what you do. When Pharaoh speaks to you saying, show a miracle for yourself, then you say to Aaron, take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. Now some translations render that crocodile. I know that may seem strange because most of our English translations render it crocodile, but there are many translations of this throughout the world that render this crocodile Serpent, creature of the sea. This becomes important, as we'll see in just a moment. Puritan Matthew Poole points out that it would be to crocodiles that Pharaoh had thrown Hebrew babies, or sea serpents, God taking (laughs) the promised seed. It's from your seed that the nations of the earth will be blessed. My Christ will come from you. 
And here, Hebrew boys are thrown. Seed bearers are thrown to see serpents and snakes. Boys and girls, do you remember what God told the serpent and Eve and Adam? I will put enmity between you and her seed. It's the battle of the Bible. I don't think we're meant to think, oh, this is kind of neat. God's doing the rod and serpent thing now. Wow, that's kind of cool. No, as we'll see, this is a theme throughout the pages of the Bible. And it's particularly a theme as it relates to the Egyptians. So God is going to show that he has power over the idols of other nations. Because, guess who the Egyptians tended to worship as a god? Crocodiles, monsters which floated in the seas. They're our gods. We'll worship them. Who is God going to show his glory over? Serpents, monsters of the sea. Well, verse 11 says, Pharaoh, ah, well, Moses, you can do some interesting things. Let me call my guys. Guys, come on over here. Do what, do what Moses is doing. And they do it, sort of. The word magician is used, and you need to know that these boys and girls weren't just magic workers, people who play with cards and say, hey, pick a card from the deck. Oh, how did you know? Right? We think about that now when we think of magic. But the magicians here would have been religious priest-like figures. So you have the religion and the priests of Egypt on display against the religion and priests, if you will, the mouthpiece of God, of God on display. Who's going to win? Well, Aaron does exactly what God says for him to do. Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh, before his servants, and it became a serpent. Something which the Egyptians worshipped. So, the text says, the magicians do the same thing. The magicians of Egypt, verse 11, they also did in the like manner with their enchantments. Now, how did they do it? Now, as I was a child growing up in the church, some of us grew up in church, some of us didn't. I happened to have grown up in the church, and I heard this story from a young age, and I, I got to thinking, sometimes with a little bit of concern, wait a minute, I thought God was the all-powerful one. How did they do it, too? Some might say it was sleight of hand, Maybe they had ways to kind of do trickery to make it look in a particular way. I think most would argue that they clearly did this by demonic activity. You know, Satan loves to copy God and to get other people to follow a little bit less than the truth of God. He really only has a few tricks, but he knows how to use them very, very well. He's been mimicking God and God's voice from the beginning. So by their enchantments, likely their tools which Satan influenced, they do it. But notice, boys and girls, what they don't do that God's sign does do. For every man, verse 12, threw down his rod and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. 
This is where the sign ends. This is the first sign and wonder that we see God doing, as it were, among the Egyptians. One commentator points out that this was a judgment on the Egyptians. Now, certainly God's rod eating the other rods, God's serpent swallowing the other serpents is a sign that God is going to bring judgment. But what this commentator meant was that God was allowing these people to continue to be duped by religious charlatans influenced by Satan. Do you know one of the mercies of God to you, Christian, is that when you drive the streets of this city and you see temples to false gods and you see churches overrun by Bible-hating liberalism, God in His mercy has not allowed you to land there. But God is showing His power over the idols. But here these people who are worshiping their king and worshiping sea creatures are left in blindness. You know, we ought to hear a passage like this and say to ourselves, but by the grace of God, I would be worshiping a serpent or a sea crocodile too. Romans 1. What do we do? We take the created things and turn them into gods. Well, the text tells us they don't heed. Pharaoh's heart is hard. In fact, we're given the name, at least by biblical tradition, of two of these magicians or enchanters. Now you may say, well, we're not given names. Turn all the way over to 2 Timothy. All the way over to 2 Timothy. These Egyptians are used. The enchanters, those who are in Pharaoh's group, are used as examples for something. 2 Timothy 3.8. There we read these words. You know, Paul, many, many years later. Now we're at the very end of the Bible, aren't we? 2 Timothy is the last book that, that Paul wrote. 2 Timothy 3, verse 8. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. Now, if you have a Bible that has corresponding notes, undoubtedly you will see that your Bible takes you to Exodus chapter 7. The Bible actually gives us the names of two people and their reputation throughout the history of the Bible is, don't be people who oppose God's word like these magicians and enchanters of Pharaoh. All the way at the end of the Bible, God, the Holy Spirit, draws the names of a couple of these men back in Exodus chapter 7 and says, you know what they were doing? They were of depraved mind and they were resisting the word of God. They're held up as an example. 
Brothers and sisters, what is God going to do when it seems uncertain, when Moses' weakness is on display, and when the outcome is unsure? He's going to get glory over earthly powers, and he is going to show his power over the idols. The very things, as we will see in these plagues and in this sign, the very things that the Egyptians worshipped, that they clung to, that they held on to for security. But finally, as we close, a third thing that God is going to do is that he's going to show future hope through signs. Now, those of you that have been with us here at Grace for any number of months or years, you probably can guess where we're going to go. It seems like just about on every page of the Bible, God gives visible pictures of hope for the future. We're going to have one here in just a few moments, Lord willing. No, I'm not saying that God is giving an old covenant sacrament here, but what I mean is God lovingly gives his people regular physical pictures to point them to something that is to come. What happens in verse 12? Aaron's rod swallows up their rods. Now, that word swallows is used elsewhere in the book of Exodus. That very same Hebrew word, it's used in Exodus 15, 12, where the earth swallows the Egyptians. But this sign also points us to something that is to come. You know, don't read this as if God is kind of doing a few magical tricks. He's kind of warming up his own power to get to the big deal of bringing them through the Red Sea. No, each of these are meticulous and they have a purpose. And in many cases, we will be able to see this sign shows Israel something. This sign shows what God is going to do. What did Aaron's rod eat up, boys and girls? The serpent. Perhaps a crocodile. We're not sure how big the snake was. Was it a crocodile? Was it a serpent? If it was a snake, what kind of snake? Something crawling on the ground that's dangerous. This is going to be a regular theme. Turn over to Psalm 74. The whole Bible has threads through Exodus, particularly even this chapter. Exodus finds expression in places like Psalm 74. Psalm 74, verse 13 and 14. What do we read there? God is praised in the ancient hymn book of Psalms for doing something. Psalm 74, 13 and 14. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters. You broke the heads of Leviathan, the sea beast, in pieces and gave him his food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. God is later on praised as the God who conquers the serpents. I just love this. I love this. Because what does God tell the true and ultimate serpent in Genesis 3.15? You're going to be crushed, and I'm going to do it. Satan may linger long in your ears, 
of his days are numbered. But it's not just Psalms. Turn over for one more instance to Ezekiel chapter 29. What do we see there? What is Egypt called in Ezekiel 29? Verses 3 to 5, Behold, I am against you, O Pharaoh, king of Egypt, O great monster who lies in the midst of his rivers, who has said, My river is my own. I have made it for myself. Sounds like the heart of every unbeliever. But I will put hooks in your jaws and cause the fish of your rivers to stick to your scales. I will bring you up out of the midst of your rivers, and all the fish in your rivers will stick to your scales. I will leave you in the wilderness, you and all the fish of your rivers, and you shall fall on the open field. You shall not be picked up or gathered. I have given you as food to the beasts of the field and to the birds of the heavens. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord. See, in Psalms, and in Ezekiel, all throughout the Bible, this story is given as an example. Why would God say, I want you to throw your staff on the ground, Aaron. It's going to turn into a serpent. They're going to do that too, and yours is going to swallow them up. Because God's promise in this physical sign is what? I'm in control, Hebrews. Egyptians, your days are numbered. You are the serpent, and you will be swallowed up for your rejection of me in the sea of wrath. Notice the future of God's power over Pharaoh and Egypt is seen. This sign is not God doing something snazzy for no reason. The very beginning of this entire endeavor, God is saying, let me picture visually for you what I'm going to do. And oh, by the way, Pharaoh, you are a small human creaturely servant of that greater serpent that will be crushed. So what does the living God encourage the saints with at the very end of the book of Romans in Romans chapter 16, verse 20? God will soon do what? Crush Satan under your feet. Now, as we close, listen to this. Not everyone would like what I'm about to read, I don't think, in this room. But an old man, a man who pastored people nearly 2,000 years ago, really, read this story for himself. And this is what he said. Then I think he's spot on. The man, by the way, is the guy who lovingly led Augustine to Christ. A man by the name of Ambrose. What is Egypt and a snake and a rod all about? What did Ambrose say? Well, listen to his words. He cast down his rod and it became a serpent which devoured the serpents of Egypt. This signified that the word should become flesh to destroy the poison of the dread serpent by the forgiveness and pardon of sins. For the rod stands for the word that is true, royal, filled with power and glorious in ruling. 
As the rod became a serpent, so he who was the Son of God, begotten of the Father, became the Son of Man, born of woman. Like the serpent, he was lifted up on the cross, poured his healing medicine on the wounds of humanity. There will be another serpent in the history of Moses, and we'll get there. Brothers and sisters, God is showing at the beginning of his great work through a sign, the future hope that the Hebrews have. Whatever Pharaoh and his magicians under the grips of sin and Satan can do, I will swallow them up. Let me just suggest to you that in just a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's table And we're going to observe a Christ-ordained physical sign. And in that moment, preached to the soul of every participating believer will be the words of the living God. I am going to bring you home soon. Because every time you observe this table, the Lord's death is proclaimed until He comes. He's coming And when you come to this table, I want you to know that He's coming. And who is He who comes? The one who swallowed up your sins and took them to the cross and the grave. God is preaching a sermon to our souls. Here, my body given for you. My blood poured out for you. Isn't God so kind? Because most of us, if not all of us, are going to come to this table in just a moment. And the thought of our own unworthiness may linger there for just a moment. The failures of the weak behind may linger there. And though this table have nothing to do with rod and serpent, in the presence of the covenant community of God now, God's voice comes through a physical sign. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to remember your sins no more. I will be your God. I will put my law in your hearts. And as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. I am going to send Him again for you. What will God do when things seem uncertain, when your weakness is on display, and when the outcome is certainly unsure? He will pay for your sins. He will provide a pure and complete substitute to take your death to the grave. He will not keep you in the grave, but He on the last day will raise you up, united to Christ For all of eternity, Christian, you will be singing the praises of the triune God and it will singularly be because God didn't let you stay lost in your sin and addicted to the false words of religious charlatans. He saved you. Let's pray. Almighty God, now we ask that as we come to this Christ-ordained visible sign, You would help us, those of us who
perhaps are facing uncertain days are aware completely of our own limitations and weaknesses. Those of us who come with failures clearly on display from the last few days, we ask that you, by this Lord's Supper and this word preached, help us to hear and to see your words which speak a louder word than all of our feelings and all of our sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.